This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Hamilton and area hospital staff are joining a province-wide workplace action for respect today. If you go into one of Hamilton's fine hospitals, uh, you will see uh, some of the staff wearing stickers that say Together for Respect. And it's all a part of a solidarity movement to try to get the government to move, and the hospitals, I guess, to move, about contract negotiations. Michael Hurley is the president of the Ontario Council of Hospital Unions, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Michael, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. This is when, when it's... To get three unions together to, to work together on a project like this is, is rather unusual. Yes, I mean, uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, there's not, a, there's not a lot of that going on, but um, these uh, three unions, QPSEIU and Unifor, uh, have formed a common front, a coalition, and we're working really well together, pooling our resources with a common cause, and, uh, and people feel, feel very positive and optimistic. Yeah. You know, we have talked at great length on this program, and as a matter of fact, I think there's been a, a provincial discussion about uh, about health care and the state of hospitals, primary care facilities, as it were, here in this province. And, and I think we know a lot of that stuff has been chronicled right now. We know that wait times are long. We know that there are backups in ER. We know that there aren't enough hospital beds. And, and those things are all major concerns as we head towards an election this spring. But we don't often talk about the impact that all of those things that we're talking about uh, as, as concerns have on the staff. And, and I think that's really the thrust of what you're attempting to bring to the public's attention here, isn't it? Yes. I mean, the workloads are crushing and uh, the staff are, as you well know, you've hosted it on your show, beset by problems of violence. And, uh, you know, uh, people are, are, are working in a very stressful environment. And the last thing that we all want to be doing is having to... Uh, you know, assert ourselves, but the the reality is that we face a, a, a tremendous number of serious concessions in bargaining, and we haven't been able to get the hospitals to to move on an issue of violence, and we haven't been able to get them to move to extend the same uh, deal they reached voluntarily with a large group of hospital employees to the rest of its staff. So, yeah, that's why we're we're pushing today, and we'll be again next week and following that until we get a resolve. Yeah. Michael, I want to pair those apart, if I could, for a couple of seconds. We'll get up, get to the wages thing in just a couple of minutes. Mm-hmm. But but the workplace violence uh, issue is something that, that I think we can identify with. I mean, it's a problem in long-term care facilities, and we tend to forget about what happens in hospitals. Uh, but it's very, very prevalent there, simply because of the fact that there are a lot of people in hospitals that really should be in long-term care facilities, but there's no room. So that burden falls onto hospital staff. Yes. I mean, we, we did a survey, as you know, and found that, uh, you know, 68% of our members have been physically assaulted at least once in the last uh, 12 months, the people who are working directly with patients. And about 40-some percent have been sexually assaulted or sexually harassed uh, by patients or family members. So we do have a very serious problem, and it's a problem, as you know, that's made worse by the fact that because Ontario has uh, the lowest number of hospital beds uh, to population, there's tremendous competition really to get a bed, and there's there there are real access problems because of underfunding, and as a result, uh, you know, in a, in an atmosphere where people are dealing with very serious concerns about the health conditions of their loved ones, tempers fray, and uh, you know, uh, alcohol and drugs can be involved, and you know, all of these things are a bit of a, a bit of a brew that creates an environment where staff are unfortunately uh, routinely uh, victimized 
physically, sexually, verbally. All right, so there are two parts to that concern. One is, uh, are there sufficient support mechanisms in place if something does happen that, that the staff member who has been affected by that kind of violence uh, has uh, a comfort level that they can go to staff or go to their supervisors and talk about this and get some help? Well, uh, definitely, and unfortunately what you know people report, uh, some 40-some percent in our survey reported that they're afraid to report violence because the natural outcome is that they're uh, blamed for it. They must have done something wrong. And uh, in fact, um, real support for people who are victims of violence, either income support. Uh, we've had, I think, people on your show who've uh, beaten up so badly in Guelph, for example, never able to work again. And, you know, I mean, uh, you know, no access really to, to counseling, uh, pr- problems with uh, income going forward, um, you know, and and really not supported, uh, you know, by their supervisors or by the management. So that is, a, that is a huge problem, the lack of support that exists for people who suffer violence in the course of their work. Which uh, I guess segues us into maybe the more important problem here is preventing it in the first place. Uh, what, what kind of measures have you talked about? I mean, every time I talk to staff about workplace violence in hospitals and healthcare facilities, Michael, invariably what I hear back from staff is we just don't have enough people. Uh, we, we can't be there exactly when they need us. We can't be there when the buzzer is ringing. Uh, we, you know, we're, we're trying to do things that probably two staff members should be doing, and we're doing it with one person, and that causes problems. It really does come down to staffing. Staffing is a huge problem because, as, as you know, uh, Ontario has the fewest hospital staff working uh, to patients in a ratio of, of any of the provinces because we fund our hospitals at the lowest level. And, uh, you know, in a place like an emergency room or in an ICU or a, particularly in a psychiatric unit, um, the levels of understaffing result in people working alone. Um, help is slow coming. Um, you know, so understaffing is, is very much uh, a, a cornerstone of a solution. But, you know, as importantly, Bill, frankly, is the fact that, um, you know, the hospitals have to say that. Uh, there will be no tolerance. Like, they have to post signs, which so far many of them have refused to do. Post signs uh, discouraging people from uh, from expressing verbal or physical uh, aggression against staff people. I mean, you'd think that would be simple. You'd see it in a doctor's office. You'd probably see it in a restaurant, but you're not going to see it in many hospitals. And it's this kind of obstinate refusal to address this problem that that compounds it, you know, in addition to the need for flagging systems and better reporting from the Crown and the police when they bring in people who are intoxicated or charged with crimes which involve violence or uh, in addition to providing some relief in terms of allowing hospitals to rebuild infrastructure so people are not as easily attacked or providing them with personal alarms and getting to the staffing problem. The first bridge we have to cross really is the hospitals accepting that this is something that we should be doing something about, and we should have an, uh, an attitude of zero tolerance. I want to go back to this idea about posting signs. and I, I mean, we can go into a rec center here in Hamilton or, or, or an arena or even a, a, you know, a soccer pitch, and there are signs all over the place saying, you know, this is a zero tolerance policy. If you do anything like this, you're out. Uh, why aren't hospitals doing that? What, what, I, you said they're not, but I'd like to understand. Are they giving you an explanation? Well, at a fundamental level, I think the problem is that the the hospitals don't want to offend the public, and yet, um, you know, uh, 
and and it, this may have to do, you know, uh, to a large part with the fact that the workforce is is largely female. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure, but an expectation certainly exists that people just accept uh, this barrage of violent behavior. So, well, uh, uh, just what, a, on that issue, though, Michael, yeah. is there an acknowledgement that there is a problem with violence by staff and by administration? Uh, well, I wouldn't say that 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 it's acknowledged in a real way. No, because we don't see we don't see measures. I mean, there's a uh, you know there's a, a joint project underway with the provincial government, and the hospitals have vetoed uh, pretty much every recommendation that would be meaningful coming out of that. Um, no, I don't think they're at a place in terms of dealing with this problem uh, that they need to be in order to. Uh, you know, to address it properly, frankly, I don't. No. The reason I'm asking is because, you know, their, their reticence to put signs up may be an indication that they're saying, hey, there's nothing to see here, there's really no problem. Uh, but I'm hearing quite a different story from staff. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, it boggles my mind. I mean, uh, you know, I, I was appalled that we couldn't get something as simple in the negotiations as a commitment that every hospital would post signs in public areas, that people not... Uh, that you know that violent aggressive behavior would not be tolerated i i you know given that you've got a workplace where um you know there are very serious assaults i mean people you know there's one case of a person beaten to death but in many cases people beaten so badly or disfigured or you know um so obviously we have a problem worse it goes on every day it goes on every day with you know smaller assaults slapping grabbing pinching biting kicking you know like so you, you, you shouldn't need much more evidence to say that something needs to be done about it. And so they need to step up here in terms of doing the most simple things to, to flag to everyone that it's just not okay. And that includes, for example, calling the police where that's warranted and supporting the laying of charges. Because otherwise, how would the public ever know that it wasn't okay? Well, because the stories I'm hearing, first of all, there's that concern, that relationship between staff and, and the patients, and, and sometimes you're right, that can go offside very quickly because of a number of different things, could be medications, etc. But I've also heard stories about uh, staff having problems with visitors, whether they're family or friends or something, that are somewhat abusive to staff uh, because of their concerns, what they think is a lack of, of proper treatment or a timely, uh, re- I guess, response to some of these things. Uh, it would be helpful, I would think, for the administration to acknowledge that and, and at least say, look, we need to talk about how we can do this. I, I fully agree with you. I mean, I, I, we all appreciate that that family members are, are in a very stressful situation that it oftentimes they're dealing with, you know, um, news, which is, which is, you know, very difficult for them to process. And, and, you know, they're very, um, you know, anxious about the, the care that their loved one is receiving and they, and they may second guess the quality of that care. And in some cases, you know, perhaps the care isn't there the way it should be. Um, uh, but, you know, at any rate, um, None of that excuses a physical or a verbal or sexual assault against a staff member who's simply trying to do their job to make the care the best that they can do with the resources they've got, right? All right, invariably this comes down to money, too, and I know that part of the negotiations when you do get back to the table are going to be about money, and and, and I know some listeners are going to say, Michael, what are you talking about? Nurses make big bucks. I mean, what's the problem with salaries? Everybody's doing all right, aren't they? Well, you know, I mean, our our uh, our people, uh, you know, we, re- we we do represent a large number of, of nurses. Uh, you know, uh, they're they're earning about, uh, you know, maybe thirty dollars an hour. Uh, many of our members earn less than that. 
Uh, on the wage front, part of the problem is that uh, the hospitals entered into an agreement voluntarily with uh, the union that represents laboratory technologists and technicians. And, you know, that that settlement itself was, you know, fairly under the prevailing norm of, of public sector wage settlements for teachers or for community college workers or for public uh, servants directly employed by the government. Um, but they won't extend that to us. They've told us that they believe that, you know, we should take a, a lower percentage increase. And that's where all of these things come together with a feeling that despite being effectively the most productive hospital workforce in the country and acknowledging that the hospitals do have cost pressures, we do feel that we're not being respected in the bargaining. And that wage issue is compounded by the fact that we're looking at a whole range of concessions which would strip out significant parts of our collective agreement. So that's why we're on the march today and going forward. Michael, the election comes up on June 7th. What are the chances of getting this discussion onto the agenda for the three party leaders, the four party leaders? Sorry, I give the Green Party some respect as they get get into this as well, but making this part of that discussion about the key issues here in this province. Well, I'm certainly hoping that our efforts uh, are going to result. We've, we've got the hospitals to agree to go back into bargaining with us April 21st and 22nd, and for the first time, QP, SEIU, and Unifor will be at a common table. I'm really hoping we're going to resolve this collective agreement. The issue of hospital and long-term care funding, I'm hoping becomes, and we're certainly going to do everything we can to try to make it become, uh, you know, a significant issue in the election because uh, Ontario has underfunded its hospitals and its long-term care facilities, which now have had a lot of hospital patients pushed into them without any additional staffing. Um, and so there are care issues, there are access issues, you know, there are quality issues, and um, you know, all the, you know, the 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 of the of the parties, you know, uh, the most ominous actually is the is the Conservative Party because they're talking about reducing spending, and we are afraid that that means very significant cuts to hospitals and long-term care. Well, you've been down that road before. We'll see what happens on June 7th. Michael, thanks as always for the time today and for adding Thank some you. clarity to this. I know we'll talk again soon. Really appreciate the opportunity, Bill. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Michael Hurley, President of the Ontario Council of Hospital Unions. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. We have uh, had the Acorn Group on the, for, the, the program before. This is a group of people that are uh, trying to fight basically against uh, landlords who are not meeting their responsibilities when it comes to uh, building standards. And uh, they're looking at a couple of properties right now over in Melvin Avenue, over in the east end of the city. And uh, there's going to be another, uh, cons- I guess, you know, movement to, to try to get these folks to do something. Uh, 285 Melvin is the apartment, although there have been other ones around the city. It's an ongoing problem, and it's it's something that seems to be festering right now. There are standards that uh, that apartment owners are supposed to adhere to. They don't always do that, and uh, they want bylaw to get involved. They want everybody to get involved and basically bring these people in line. Uh, I want to talk with Sam Marola about this. He's the counselor for Ward 4 out in the east end of the city. Uh, Sam, first of all, thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate the time. My pleasure, Bill. This is not new to you. I'm one of the more celebrated cases of a landlord who was really screwing the residents around. Uh, it was right in your ward. I think it was on Melvin Avenue, too, wasn't it, where they shut the heat off and, and a couple of other things? Right. It was 555 uh, Melvin Avenue, which okay. was really the catalyst to the um, the essential services bylaw that I brought forward that was supported by council and, and presently exists to protect tenants 
from utilities being cut off when they're when the utilities are included in the rent itself. So we've come a long way when it comes from that perspective, but also we have a lot of work to do with respect to a lot of absentee landlords or irresponsible landlords that aren't meeting their, their obligations. And as it pertains to ACORN, I applaud their efforts, and I spoke to them a couple of days ago regarding this particular issue, and I've asked them to forward to me a detailed list of deficiencies so I can, I can have enforcement uh, uh, go out there and, and, and enforce accordingly. And I also encourage them to get involved with the Landlord Tenants Act, because as you know, that falls within the provincial jurisdiction. So there are, there are certain responsibilities as, as a city official that I can pursue, and that's through property standards. But most of this uh, falls under the Provincial tenor, uh, Landlord and Tenant Act, which I encourage people to, uh, to pursue accordingly. Sam, I want to ask you about that landlord-tenant protection, because there was a problem going way, way back when you and I were both on council many years ago. Uh, where there were still some provincial guidelines in place that even if, if uh, the city cited something and, and said to a landlord, you got to fix this, uh, they got served, but they had like 30 or 60 days or something to respond, uh, and they'd usually wait till the 59th day and then say, well, we want an appeal. And, and that would just drag it on and on and on. Is that still in place? The process is still in place, and it goes both ways, right? So yeah. if, a, if a tenant doesn't pay their rent, uh, it goes through the same tribunal, uh, but the same... Um, appeals are allocated on both ends. So it's a process that at times seems to work, but at times uh, works a little too slow. Uh, having said that, um, really, let's separate the good from the bad. The vast majority of, of landlords are good. Uh, really, the ones that are bad are the ones we should be targeting, and we should be targeting very hard. So we should be collectively working with the province in conjunction with our enforcement branch to ensure we keep these uh, tenants, uh, sorry, these landlords uh, held to account. I mean, I know the tenants can get frustrated, and, and I'm sure you'll get calls from time to time, as will some of your council colleagues, and say, hey, you guys aren't doing anything about this. Well, you are, and so is bylaw, but they're kind of you know, tied uh, at the wrists a little bit here because of some of these provincial statutes that, that basically allowed these bad landlords to kind of rag the puck and not get anything done. Well, the reality is, Bill, and most people aren't aware, and they, nor should they be aware, but the city is a creature of the province. And uh, as a result, we simply are, they dictate to us how we pursue these issues. So they're afforded, everyone is afforded a certain process. And these processes are in place, again, to try to find some sort of balance uh, between enforcement and finding a solution. So there are those that abuse it, like anything else. And then there are those that don't abuse it. They're not the problem. But granted, there are those chronic landlords that manipulate the process, not too dissimilar to some tenants, who do the same when they don't pay their rent. But at the same rate, uh, it probably is representative of 5% of all the landlords and all the tenants, but those are the ones we hear about because it's negative. Is it is the problem getting worse or is it getting better? You know, I think with, with respect to the fact that um, in Hamilton we're going through this renaissance and there's a direct association to the increase of rent, that the problem is becoming far more uh, severe in the sense that people are paying a lot of money today and they expect certain standards, uh, and it's, they're unaffordable, yet the standards don't meet any level of, of uh, palatable standards, and, and that's what's creating more frustration. But at the same rate, I, I would say that uh, a lot of these landlords are trying to force a lot of these people out, which is a whole other issue that ties into the gentrification, and um, I hope that this is not the case in this particular situation, because a lot of times it is somewhat of a ploy on the landlord's uh, part in order to try to force tenants out in order to remodel them and then lease them out at a higher rate. 
Yeah, that's, again, maybe something that tenants may not be aware of, and, and it's a, kind of an inside baseball thing, but the reality is, is because of the rent control system that's in place right now, uh, they can't jack somebody's rent up 50%, but if they boot that person out and fix the apartment up, they can raise the rent 50% to the new tenant. Right, so every time I hear of these issues, it always comes to mind that that, that might be the case, and if that is the case, there should be some sort of, but the question then becomes, how do you prove it? And and, and that's really what we're faced uh, with and the crux of the problem. So the bottom line is this. I think, as I mentioned, Acorn and any other uh, resident that's listening that has an issue with their landlord, go through the enforcement aspect first. Failing that, then I, I would I would encourage you to protest. But I think there has to be a process that has, has to be followed in order to follow due diligence and allow for a response without without trying to personalize the issues on both ends. What about stock, rental stock, Sam? I mean, we had a lot of discussions with you and Councillor Collins and, and, and some of the other folks that have been working on that file for many, many years about rental or about uh, affordable housing, but we don't often talk about rental stock. And, you know, if the tenant is not satisfied and feels as if they're getting a raw deal from their landlord, I, I'm hearing that there's not a whole lot of options for them. It's not like they can simply say, yeah, I'll go down the street. Well, from a competitive standpoint, you're right. But there is an option for them to complain and to file complaints uh, formally through the uh, Landlord-Tenant Act, as well as through um, City Hall when it comes to property standards or essential services. Um, but my, my, my suggestion would be to those that are faced with this problem is to reach out to their city council and or MTP and collectively uh, we'll be able to put a plan of action together to address the issues. But we need to know what the problems are before we can find a solution. And see, sometimes, uh, and I encourage protests, but sometimes the protest should follow a due diligence in trying to find a solution, or else we're, we're, we're ahead of ourselves. So I think the first step of action should be have a petition, have a list of deficiencies, clear and concise, uh, submitted into your city councilor, at which time action should be taken by our enforcement branch. Failing that, then I think uh, the public protests uh, would be not only justified, but really necessary. Maybe you could outline very briefly, Sam, once that happens and the landlords do that, and I know that more and more of these places are starting to develop tenants' associations, or at least trying to anyway, uh, to try to speak with one voice. But once they make that phone call to, well, let's say your office, uh, what's the process? How do you handle it, and what happens after that? We would simply forward it on to our enforcement branch for action, and they would uh, take the deficiencies down. They would go down, investigate, and then respond to to myself or to the counselor and the complainant accordingly with respect to what action has been taken and what the time frame will be uh, for that for those actions to, uh, to be resolved. So do the enforcement officers actually do a site visit? Do they actually oh, t- bring that list with them and say, I want to see this, I want to see this? Well, they will investigate to determine, firstly, are the complaints merited? And if they are, then they would provide uh, orders to comply. And at which time, uh, they would be given a certain amount of time to comply, and uh, then they would follow up accordingly after. Uh, if, if extensions are needed for whatever reason, or if they've met those, uh, if they met the order, then the solution, then the solution will be uh, forthcoming. From your experience uh, on council, and I know you've seen a lot of these over the years. Do they respond to this? Are they proactive, oh, or do they do they try to to, to skate around it? But again, there's always always going to be a bad apple in, in the in the pile, right? But the vast majority uh, do respond because they don't want to go through the expense of a tribunal or hiring a lawyer or being subjected to fines. Uh, most people who are, who are merited business people don't want to be subject to any type of charge or fines or, or tribunal uh, type of hearing. 
So I would say the vast majority are resolved. But again, there's always going to be a few bad apples in every pile. Is the city proactive on this? Do they do they check no. these sites? Do they drive around, or is it a complaint based system? No, we just don't have the resources for that. The only the only um, two bylaws which I initiated and proudly that we're being proactive on is uh, is garbage dumping and graffiti. And the graffiti um, pilot project is this the spring and summer. So there now we have a crew that are actively uh, out there identifying graffiti, reporting it, and then following the process. But we would need an army of enforcement officers. As you know, we have thousands of bylaws. Uh, so the question becomes, which bylaw do we become proactive on? We know that lately we've been having true, uh, serious problems related to uh, garbage dumping, graffiti, uh, stealing of, um, of our metals, like our precious metals. Uh, and all of that is considered a priority, and we're being far more proactive along those lines. Uh, but we couldn't. Uh, it would be humanly impossible and fiscally impossible to proactively enforce all of our bylaws. Are, are there problem areas that, uh, that that you look at here? Uh, I know that you've had a few on Melvin Avenue, but uh, you know the other ones we heard of actually were down, I think, in Ward 3. Uh, so it, it seems to be uh, an issue that seems to be prevalent across most of the downtown areas. I would even suggest even beyond. Uh, along Mohawk, I, I know of, a, and along Rymel Road, uh, I know of a lot of complaints along those areas. So, it all, again, it all depends on the landlord, um, and there's, there's generally a correlation. If um, if your landlord has more than one property, probability is that you're going to get more than one complaint about that particular landlord. So, like anything else, though, we have we have great landlords, we have good landlords, and we have poor landlords. And um, the, the problem becomes that the poor landlords occupy the vast majority of our resources, like no other type of scenario. It's always it's always the the five percent that generates eighty percent of the attention. I, I guess I should ask you right off the top. Are you aware of the problems at 285 Melvin? Yes, Acorn reached out to me. Okay. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not aware of the the actual items of deficiencies, but they did reach out to me a couple of days ago, and I encouraged them to get together with tenants and forward to me. I list the deficiencies so I can actually activate enforcement. I have not received that list to date. Well, uh, maybe that'll be the next step, hopefully, anyway. Sam, thanks as always for the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Bill. Take care. That's uh, Ward 4 Councillor Sam Marula. Uh, Melvin Avenue, the place, uh, the focus of the uh, the protest that's going to be going on today uh, is uh, in his area, of course, on Melvin Avenue over in the east end of the city. And and by the way, we've told you this before when we've talked to the Acorn folks, if, if you are a tenant and you're going through this sort of stuff, uh, your first step is always to call your city councillor. And you may or may not get satisfaction there, but that starts the process. And, and as Councillor Marula told us, and we've heard this many, many times before, uh, this is this is complaint driven. They don't have time nor the resources of the staff to go around and look at apartment buildings, unless you call and say, "Hey, I got a problem at such and such an address," and they will respond to that. They will follow up. But just keep in mind that uh, there is a provincial set of guidelines in place here that uh, give them that opportunity to wait and wait and wait and not do anything, and then ask for a stay of execution. And it can get very lengthy sometimes. So I know the last thing you want to talk to people right now is be patient because you're frustrated as a tenant, but oftentimes that's that's really the rule of order here. So we'll see how this particular address goes over the next little while. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. You may be aware, because uh, we've told you about this on CHML News, there's an inquest going in right now to inmate deaths at Barton Street Jail, uh, which is a troubling story, a very troubling story and one that probably has not received the attention that really deserves because it's been an ongoing problem. 
Uh, the inquest hopefully is going to solve some of this and answer some of the questions that have been raised about the, well, aid deaths at least that have occurred there. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Ruth Greenspan, who is the executive director of the John Howard Society here in Hamilton. Ruth, thank you for joining us. It's great to have you on the program today. Oh, most welcome. Thanks for asking. Let me ask you right off the top. Do you, John Howard Society, do you guys have standing in this inquest? Uh, we do not have formal standing. It was something that we had looked at, but we just um, weren't able to get ever, all our ducks in a row for that. So we do not, but we have made a very... Um, clear statement that we will offer support to any of the families that need us, so we are here for that. And we certainly um, have been in touch with the Crown doing the inquest and are supportive around um, providing any materials requested um, throughout the inquest as well. As you always have been. I mean, that's that's right. the, the, the mantra of the John Howard Society, to be able to offer those supports. Let me ask on a philosophical level, do people that are involved in, and maybe even inmates at the jail, uh, do they get a fair shake or is there a, there a, a myth and, and an aura about them that, uh, that people look down on them and say, well, they're criminals anyway, so what's the big deal? I would say that working at John Howard, we are always working against those barriers. So there is absolutely, um, in all of society, barriers against the clientele who've been in conflict with the law or at risk of conflict with the law. And um, so every institution and everywhere in society, there is that belief. And when I do speak publicly, I say to people, have you ever broken a law? And no one in society I know has never not broken one law. And the issue is there's no difference between them and us only other barriers um, create more havoc in their lives. So they are us. There's another element to this that we need to consider. Some of the people that are in that facility, of course, may be awaiting trial. So to suggest that they're all bad people is not necessarily the case. Uh, but they are, like the rest of society, uh, prone to some of the human frailties. And, and one of those, of course, is substance abuse. And I know that you deal with an awful lot of that. We do, and right now there is a fentanyl crisis, and that is something that affects us personally as well as professionally. So drug abuse is something, again, that people don't wake up and decide they're just going to start using substances or injection drugs. It happens, there's barriers, it becomes a coping strategy, and we are absolutely um, one of the organizations in the city that is looking at how we can best work together to prevent those deaths. Well, we found that out when we did our five-part series about opioid crisis uh, just a few months ago here on our program. And, and I think it was an eye-opener for a lot of people when they, they finally, uh, I think, accepted the revelation that, look, at these, <laughs> these are people from all walks of life uh, that are prone to this. I mean, it could happen to each and every one of us, uh, given a, a change in circumstance, uh, you know, whether it's a surgery where painkillers are in, in order or whatever the case might be. And, and addiction is a very short path from, from that sort of thing. And uh, oftentimes, as I know you found out of the John Howard Society, of course, addiction can lead to crimes sometimes, and it's a, it's a vicious cycle. Absolutely, and I would say that you are right on, and it happens especially with things like fentanyl and carfentanil and other opiates. They are so addictive, and people don't always know they're taking them. And it's um, a whole new game out there with synthetic drugs. It's, uh, it's very dangerous. How much interaction does the John Howard Society have with the inmates at Barton Street? Well, we currently um, have offered that we would like to go in and do programming. We were doing programming for anger management, 
for uh, reintegration and support in our yard program, for our crisis intervention program, and we have asked actually recently if we can go in and offer more programming, and we are just waiting um, on funding to see if that's something that the ministry uh, can do. But we, um, and substance abuse was a huge part that we were providing as well. So we were in on a regular basis a couple days a week, and that just um, stopped in April when we're looking at a new funding year and hoping that we can get the resources to continue that with them. Well, it sounds like a great partnership because, you know, when we hear about some of the problems in the jail, uh, and I've talked to some of the staff there, invariably what they come back and say is, look, it's a staffing problem. We just don't have the numbers. We don't have the resources nor the time to do the sorts of things that maybe we want to do and some of the support services. So you know, when somebody like the John Howard Society steps in, uh, you'd think that they would embrace that idea. Well, and they do. And we sit at some of the tables in the community, um, the community um Human Justice Committee with staff from inside as well, and we are part of the problem solving. Resourcing is a huge issue, and resourcing um, at the provincial level to get money to work with people in conflict or risk of conflict is huge. Um, so they are absolutely accurate when they say they don't have the resources inside to do what they need to, and we certainly don't have the resources out here either. Um, our yard program is one I've been talking about, um, and it is running out of funding a, um, Sorry, on August 1st, and that program has served um, a 1,000 youth at risk over the last five years, and those are youth who... Um, end up in the detention center because um, they don't have other options. They end up dead. They end up in gang violence. And we are looking federally and provincially to keep that program going. And currently, um, we've had no takers. Are are they saying no, or are they just not responding? Well, um, we've spoken to one provincial funder who said that they felt... um, and this was not the Ministry of Corrections. It was another ministry, and they said, we feel that there may be other programs out there, but there aren't. No one else is doing any of uh, the gang and gang at-risk programs that we are, and um, others we are awaiting for responses right now. Well, that's uh, that's cutting off your nose to spite your face. I mean, what they, they, a government's famous for this, and I don't need to tell you that, Ruth, that, that oftentimes... Uh, government programs become reactive instead of proactive, and they wait in, until a problem festers and then decide, okay, how are we going to solve this? You're offering them a possible uh, proactive solution to make sure that maybe this doesn't happen, or at least it's going to happen less frequently, and you'd think that they would gravitate to that. Well, we are offering a program that's a quarter of what it costs to incarcerate, and We've also costed out incarceration, death, funerals, and looking at how our young people, when, um, and when I say young people, the program goes up to the age of um, 24. So it's not just really young people, but how those people then become active members of society when they've been through our yard program. Um, so, yeah, it, it is cost-effective. It works. Um, we have evidence-based research to show that. And um, right now it really feels like a hot potato of funders um, of trying to figure out who will catch the potato and fund the program. But 
let's let's talk a, a little bit about what happens if those those programs aren't in place and 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 those inmates and and those people that are trying to get their lives back in order uh, don't have those support services. Uh, they may serve their their time in Barton Street Jail uh, six months, three months, whatever the case might be, depending on the offense, I suppose. But if they're released back into the public uh, and with no support services, I mean, what are the chances of reoffending and being back in the same spot of a few weeks or a few months later? They're huge. I mean, and I'll give a, a concrete example. Um, just um, the other day, we had a person who had reoffended, and they the first thing they did, um, they were in trouble, and they had not. Um, got any support, the first thing they did when they got out is they came back to us and they said, help me, I'm on a bad path. They hadn't committed another crime, but they said, I'm on a bad path. I need help. And they showed up at our door. And so that's my biggest fear is um, people will not have anyone opening up that door. And we do the work because we want to help them um, get a better life and deal with some of those barriers, and it terrifies me. Um, another example, right now there is going to be the amalgamation of the schools in the downtown North End. Yeah. And we've been asked by the superintendent, because there's rival gangs involved there, we've been asked if we can be part of the solution. And we have said, absolutely, we are there and we are going to the meetings. Problem? Come August 1st, if YARD does not get funding, that program is gone. We have nothing then to offer. Our other programs will continue, but YARD, which deals with the most at risk um, in uh, the younger population, won't be there to help solve those gang wars. And you've heard the discussions and the debates and, and the anguish, and it's justified, really, Ruth, when we hear about violence that happens in some neighborhoods and, you know, why is the police presence? Why aren't they doing something about this? And and what tends to get lost in in, in that very, very emotional time is that there are steps that can be taken to make sure that that doesn't happen. And 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 I know some people just put those off and say, well, you give the kids a basketball, and they're just going to play, and they're not going to... No, it's not that simple, but you know that. And and there are structured programs that are available right now uh, to try to mitigate those damages. And, you you, you know, the, we, we need to gravitate to those. And I think that's really what we're looking for here is, is that community support. And, Bill, you are absolutely right. We are in... Um, the different hubs in the neighborhood. And when there were problems in the Queston neighborhood, we were called in. Problems in the Rolston neighborhood, we were called in. We worked super close um, with the city, with the neighborhood action strategy, with the police as well, to be preventive in nature. And that is what we do, and that's what we're mandated to do. So those prevention pieces are what John Howard has always been committed to doing. Well, and and that's one of the great things about this. And I just want to—I'll beat the drum for you for just a second, uh, because a lot of people may not know much about the John Howard Society, unless, in fact, uh, somebody or somebody, maybe even themselves, uh, have to to go there. But uh, but you're out into the community. You're not just saying, "All right, if uh, after you get out, after your sentence, after your jail time, uh, here's the number, call us." Uh, you're reaching out and. And I know our, your predecessor, our, our dear friend Dave Lane, uh, was was very active in making sure that the John Howard Society was in those neighborhoods uh, so that the people in those neighborhoods knew that they had a friend there. Absolutely. And people know the yard workers and the schools call the yard workers and the community people call. We have BIAs when there was an issue in Barton recently. We were the first call they made. Something's going on. Can you be here and help us? 
We go to all the hub meetings. Um, we've been involved, as I said, in business. Um, the tie cats are amazing, and we have done work with them, um, and they do a job fair where they hire our young people to work in their concessions. So we are really embedded in this community and do a lot with prevention. And even with the opioid crisis, public health has reached out to us, so our staff are trained, and that's something that we've had conversations about. So we are an integral fabric uh, in the community on a very preventative basis. That's an interesting aspect, and I know this inquiry has only been going on for a few days now, but from the testimony that we've heard so far, obviously the opioid crisis is playing a major role in some of the the angst and and some of the problems that they're dealing with, the staff are dealing with there at the jail, and uh, it's almost as if they're trying to, in damage control, but at the same time, they understand, I guess, that there have to be support programs in place. Uh, Maybe we got a, a couple of minutes left here. Talk to us about how the John Howard Society plays a role in that with those support programs for people that are dealing with substance abuse. Well, we again, we offer um, substance abuse, and we have expertise in that. So we do have a program here where um, we do um, substance abuse and um, just around the effects of it and helping people. We do a huge referral um program, we deal with um, people who are out on bail, and almost every other person we deal with needs referral to substance abuse, so we are involved in that. We also, again, uh, we work with the AIDS Network really closely. Um, They will come out, and um, sometimes in the space our building is, um, people have been known to do substances in the neighborhood. We make sure if there's syringes that we get rid of those in a safe way. We have a program in the agency with young people if they're found with drugs, um, that there's a program about four times a year where ourselves and Alternatives for Youth and the police do an educational session and educate uh, parents as well as the young people. So it's um, we do a lot and Again, we are trained so that we do have a kid if anything happens here as well. Unfortunately, the agency's lost a couple people um, to the opiate crisis, a couple of our clients in the bail program, and that's been really sad and really upsetting. And even on a personal note, many people here um, have had um, people in their personal lives that we have lost as well. So it affects everybody. We're going to hear a lot more about what's going on at Barton Street Jail as this inquest continues, of course, because there are issues with overcrowding. There are too many people in the cells. Uh, there are mental health issues with some of the uh, the, the inmates there, uh, and you know whether or not there are proper resources to a identify that and b to do something about that. And then, of course, there's the uh, the substance abuse. On and on it goes, but uh, it's worth noting that the John Howard Society uh, plays an active role in trying to deal with some of those problems, even while they're there and, of course, uh, after they're released as well. Ruth, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. I'm so glad you could join us. And thank you so much. The other, my last plug, um, on June 1st, we have our event down at Macassa Bay, and it's sipping at the dock of the bay. And it also, um, money is raised for the David Lane Success Fund so that we are able to send young people um, to post-secondary education who can't afford it. And um, also some proceeds to John Howard. And if you want to come, please come and be our guest. Well, we had a great time down there last year. Looking forward to it again. Thanks again, Ruth.
Thanks, Bill. Bye-bye. Ruth Greenspan, of course, Executive Director of the John Howard Society here in Hamilton. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.